one of the huge questions that shapes our lives and makes us who we are is this. Is it our nature? In other words, we can't help the things that we do, or is it nurture? Is it some genetic code within us, or is it our upbringing and our social environment? Which of these two things dominates and shapes us? Certainly, um, genes and culture are powerful influences on our lives. There's no question about that. But some people who work and think in the whole area of behavior and moral ethics suggest that there's a third thing, a third force that comes into play in our lives, and that is choice. That the essence you see of being human is being able to choose. We are not robots. We're not computers programmed with data simply to spew out results. We're not animals. We're men and women and people who are made imago dei. That means in the image of God. And in the image of God, this gives us both the freedom and the responsibility of choice. Freedom and responsibility always go hand in hand, side by side. Yin and yang. Is that Chinese? Oh, good. Got it right. And Jesus, as he walks in life, is always calling people to make a core choice. And it's to choose, as we'll see this morning, the kingdom of God that we've defined as the reign and the rule of God in our lives. Jesus presents this as the very best thing we can do. He says, as we'll come to a little later in Matthew chapter 6, he says, you seek first the kingdom of God. Put it first. A priority, we'll say this morning. And all of the things that we worry about and stew about and get tied up in knots about, he says, all of these things will come to us in time. The kingdom is to be a priority in our lives. And when we make a kingdom choice, we're putting, you see, God's agenda first in our lives. We're called to think in terms of kingdom choices. Making what I'll call this morning a kingdom priority. Now here's my definition for you this morning. A kingdom choice means choosing a relationship, an attitude, or an action which is aligned with the character and the will and the purpose of God, putting that first. And then the last phrase is really important. And then trusting God with the outcome. It is making a kingdom choice. We align ourselves with the character and the purpose of God in our relationships and actions and attitude. And then we're willing to trust God with the results of that in our life. That becomes a kingdom priority. Seeking the kingdom. I'll tell you this morning as we'll say, and you will know in your life, it's not always easy. But it's the way that God calls us to live. Let's unpack that a little bit this morning. <clears throat> and say to you that kingdom choices are based on principles, not on pragmatics. We've got to share, show we understand it. For instance, if, if I hear in the radio that there's an accident on the Burrard Street Bridge, let's say, I'll take the Granville Street Bridge. That's being pragmatic. Because I don't like sitting in traffic. It is not good for my spiritual life. It really isn't. So I'll find another bridge. In many, many ways, we are pragmatists. But if you add the little ending ism, I-S-M, to things, we have pragmatism. And that is consciously or unconsciously a life philosophy or worldview that says, you know what, the end justifies the means. That's the way we'll live. You do whatever you have to do. Pragmatism often looks for the short-term solution. You just got to get things done. 
Pragmatism is the quick fix. Get through the problem, find the solution, get instant gratification, and don't worry really about what lies ahead. Pragmatism is disposable for this incident only, then we'll check it out and we'll find a new one. One of the real tensions between Christianity and pragmatism is the conflict between what is right and what is simply expedient, which is getting the job done. Don't worry what things lead to. Just go ahead and do it. Caiaphas, who interviewed Jesus at his trial, it says he advised the Jews that it was expedient. What it literally says, it is pragmatic for someone to die today on behalf of the people. We need somebody to die for Caiaphas. I don't think it really matters very much who it was, but we just need somebody. That's a pragmatic solution that Caiaphas was facing in the moral realm. People who make decisions that are blown by the winds of pragmatism are really little more than moral chameleons. They change color with every issue. They live in the changing results of the Gallup poll of community values. But when we accept a moral spiritual stance that says there is a kingdom issue at stake here, there are principles that do not change. There's kingdom truth, which is based on principles, based on the character of God, have deep roots in truth. I believe we become people, men and women, who receive an enormous inner power and strength from God to be able to defend what we've chosen, to live out what we believe is right. When we understand what that point of truth is, we have enormous strength at that point to stand on it and to live in it. We make a kingdom choice and we trust God for the results. One of the great sources of worry in our lives is what will other people think. When we make kingdom choices, that is not the issue. The only issue is what does God think. Will that always be easy? No, it's not. Let me take you for a moment back to one of the really great stories of the Old Testament. We don't have time to read it all in several chapters, so I'll just summarize. The story of Joseph. Remember Joseph hated by his brothers? sold into slavery they're going to leave him for dead and then he ends up in the house of a man called Potiphar in Egypt it's a warm Egyptian afternoon one day and everybody's out and Potiphar's, uh, Potiphar's wife makes an invitation to Joseph she says Joseph come to bed with me in fact it says she spoke to Joseph day after day this lady just was after him and Joseph refused to go to bed with her or even be with her Joseph says no he says, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to me, to his care. I'm not going to do that. Joseph says, no, no thank you. Do you know that decision ends up, in Joseph, it ends up for Joseph in prison? And if you add it all up and do the math in Genesis, he's in prison for 13 years for saying no to going to bed with this lady. Now, if that's a kingdom decision, you have to kind of say, that doesn't sound too great. Thirteen years in prison. Joseph could have taken the pragmatic route instead of standing in principle. He could have said, okay, afternoon, everybody's out, warm day. She's kind of not too bad looking. Let's just go to bed. But in prison, if you remember, Joseph gained a reputation for honesty and courage, as well as being able to understand the signs of the times. That's what God released, and given the position of power in Egypt that he had, it was crucial when his brothers came looking for food. He was able to save his whole family 
And the book of Joseph, uh, sorry, the book of Genesis goes on into Exodus and so on. In fact, this paves the way. Joseph's courage to say no and get into his position paves the way for the rest of the story of God in the Old Testament. Now let's go back for a minute and imagine that Joseph says yes to this powerful woman's invitation for casual sex. So he spends the afternoon in bed with her. Nobody knows. I mean, what's the fuss? Nobody's around. And then a week or so later, Potiphar's wife sees Joseph talking to the other slaves. And they turn and look at her. And they kind of laugh amongst themselves. And she thinks to herself, he's talking to them about what I was like in bed. And so she calls her head personal guard. Quietly gives him an instruction in his ear. And guess what? Joseph is just never seen again. He just vanishes off the face of the earth. You see, choices that are based on pragmatism seek a short-term solution. They look for the quick fix. That's what drugs and alcohol do. They simply get us through the urgent crisis, through the immediate predicament. They satisfy our present cravings for instant gratification. Choices based on the Gallup poll and popular opinion. It's like truth written on Kleenex. It's disposable. You simply throw it away as soon as you used it. Kingdom choices are different. They're based on principles. And they align themselves with God's truth and with the character of God. They're not driven by the winds of change or culture. They have deep roots in truth. It was Immanuel Kant who reminds us that the means used to accomplish ends are just as important as the ends. Got that? The means used, the process, is just as important as the outcome. It was Machiavelli who taught the opposite. The end justifies the means. And so you've got to keep Immanuel Kant, Machiavelli, in mind as you work through things. When we have the spiritual fortitude, when we have the moral courage in our day to make kingdom choices and see the kingdom, the ruin of God as a priority, and it may be tough to get to that point, folks, but when we get there, I believe we experience a quiet and deep strength, a power that we have never known before. And it's because we've made a a kingdom decision, a decision which God is our stakeholder. When the big decisions in our life are kingdom decisions, the other smaller decisions revolve around it. And you know what? They actually become easier. Let me head into an illustration. I'm sensitive to it. Don't mean to embarrass anyone. I'm well aware of the sexual standards of our culture and the pressure in our society in the area of sexuality so that more and more young people and young couples and frankly those who are not so young simply end up living together. There was a report this past week in the CBC News one night that in Quebec um, a third of the couples living together are not married. And the rest of Canada is 12.1%. In Quebec it's about one third, 33%. I have a growing sense that the whole area of sexuality before marriage and outside of marriage may be one of the last moral standards to hold as Christians. I've told you before, I don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. But I think God expects Christians to live like Christians. I am well aware of the pressure that young adults face from peers, from their culture, 
from other people simply to live together and sleep together. After all, we're told everyone else is doing it. Can I say to you this morning, to our young adults, if you are in a relationship or move into one, let me ask you to have the courage and the moral stamina not to sleep together before you enter into marriage. What other people choose to do is not the issue for your life. How other people live is not your concern. You are a daughter or a son of the kingdom. And have the courage, please, to make kingdom choices. Things that are based on truth in the life in which we live. Unpack that a little more. When we make a kingdom choice, we allow God to give us more than we ask. I think many of us struggle with what we ask for God in prayer, how God chooses to answer us. We read that whatever we ask, God will answer. We're not always sure that that works. I think we need to ask a better question. Is what we're praying about a kingdom choice? In other words, does it align itself with the heart of God? This is praying, Father, may your kingdom come. Remember what that means. May your will be done on earth, here, as it's done in heaven. Perhaps when we would pray kingdom prayers. God is able and willing to give us more than we ask. Again, let me take you back to the story in the Old Testament. You may know this one, you may not. And if you have a Bible, iPad, whatever you like to look up. Second um, Chronicles chapter 1. Chronicles, way back in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 1. Solomon is now king over Israel. But with his great power comes awesome responsibility. I'm reading chapter 1, verse 7. That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to God, to David my father. You have made me king over in his place. <clears throat> now, Lord God, let the promise to my father David be confirmed that you have made me king over the people who are numerous as the dust of the earth. And here's Solomon, Solomon's prayer. He says, Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Give me wisdom, Hebrew word is chokmah, and give me knowledge. God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, riches, honor, nor the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge to govern the people, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. And I will also give you wealth and riches and honor such as no king, whoever was before, and none ever after you will ever have. In other words, you didn't ask for these things. Riches and wealth and honor, the death of your enemies. You didn't do that. Yes, for wisdom and knowledge. So I'll give you wisdom and knowledge. And I will also give you these other things too. <coughs> that became true in Solomon's life. He received wisdom and knowledge. But he also received wealth and riches and honor. We struggle with our prayers. And I think with honesty, uh, many of us do. Perhaps we need to look at what we're praying for. And ask with frankness, what is the motive of my prayer? Will it enable me to serve people better, or is it merely for my own benefit? We need to ask kingdom questions about what its intention and its motive really is. There's another way we can unpack that. When we make a kingdom choice, we allow God to meet our needs through His faithfulness. When we make this kingdom choice and align ourselves with the character and the purpose of God, we now allow Him to meet our needs 
But it, he meets them through his faithfulness. Most of, all, most of us, in fact, if not all of us, struggle with money. We struggle with worry. We struggle about our kids. We struggle about education. How we will make ends meet in the economic climate of today. I was having lunch with somebody uh, a little while ago, some couple of years ago. Um, and it was in the midst of, you remember all the stock market went up and down and um, house prices were going down and going up and all that kind of stuff. And we talked about the economy as a couple of guys often would. And you remember some years ago, I can't remember the name of the company. Some of you might have it. Um, it promised what was called Freedom 55. Remember that? You give us our money and you can retire at 55. Okay, what was that company? I can't remember. London Life. Okay? It was London Life. You give us our money, you can retire at Freedom 55. So I kind of joked with them a little bit about that and I said, you still do that? He says, no, we have a new program out. It's called Freedom 88. You give us all your money and you can retire when you're 88. I don't know. Once again, the Bank of Canada tells us that Canadians are up to their armpits and beyond in personal debt. Something like a dollar sixty-five in debt for every dollar we earn and have. How do we make ends meet when the middle seems to keep moving? Not a new problem. Do you know you find the same struggle in the book of Haggai? Almost nobody reads Haggai these days. But I do. It might even be hard to find. Um, so we, you know, you've, we got some diagrams coming up, and I don't know where they are. Start at Malachi. If you can't find Malachi, go to the end of the Old Testament and turn left and go back. Okay. Well, and you get to the book of Haggai. Uh, it's part of a, a set of twelve books which we call the Minor Prophets. All right. Now you need to know a little bit of the context and the history of this book. That's important anywhere. But you need to know where it comes. What is the state setting going on in Haggai? And it's kind of like this. Okay. The year is 586. All right. 586 BC. And the nation of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, has fallen and they've been taken into exile. They go into exile for what, 70 years. And if you do the math, somewhere about 516 or so, 520 and 516, um, the nation is allowed to back and two prophets in the Old Testament Haggai and Zechariah are the ones who really give leadership to this you got it so you, you can sort of put these people in the right place about 440 BC later than that comes Ezra and Nehemiah that's not on the screen but that's where these, these guys come so that you get people kind of in the right order Okay, and so what happens just before they've come back is that the people with great enthusiasm and great gusto have started to rebuild the temple. Man, they're all excited about it. They're going to put the temple back. That's their church, as it were. And they're really going to give it the role. And then as human nature often is, they get started with great excitement. And then that initial enthusiasm begins to fade. And they start to focus on their own needs and their own houses and not the house of God. And so Haggai is sent about 516 along with Zechariah um, to speak into this kind of situation. Here's what he says, Haggai chapter 1, if you manage to find it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time is not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. In other words, we say, uh, you know, we shouldn't really put that first. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it time for yourselves to live in paneled houses? Now God's not against paneling. Just so you know. Okay? The point of the word paneling here is the idea of permanent. That you're putting all your time and effort and money into doing something permanent for you. And he says, well, this house remains a ruin. 
And he goes on, you've planted much, you harvested little, you never you eat, but you've never have enough. You drink, you've never had your fill. You put on clothes, you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse full of holes. Isn't that a great picture? You put the money in and it, there's holes and it just runs out the bottom. It is Haggai's way of saying to us, no matter what you have, it is never enough. You never make it the end of the week or the end of the month. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go into the mountains, bring down timber, build a house, so I may take pleasure in it and be honored. You expected much, but see, it turned to little. When you brought it home, God says, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy in your own house. The point is, he says, you made your own lives and needs a priority instead of the kingdom. Therefore, because you, the heavens have withheld their due, the earth its crops. I called for a drought in the fields, the mountains, the grain, the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground produces. God says, you got things in the wrong order. It is saying, you see, that putting God first, his kingdom choice, when it comes to things like money and time and energy, is intimately related to trust. In the Old Testament, there was an offering called the first fruits. The idea was not that you... Um, took in all the harvest, saw what you had, took what you needed to live on, and then gave God whatever was left over. Rather, the truth was, you took the very first of the harvest as it came up. And you gave that to God as an act of faith and trust that the rest would follow. Here's, very quickly, four levels of support that we need to be involved in. First of all, the Lord's work. If you're a Christian, if you're part of VCBC here, you're responsible to support what God wants to do here through the gifts of his people. That is not an option for you. That's a kingdom priority. Now understand this morning, that's not an appeal for money. It's an appeal that we become people who trust God. If you receive from the ministry, you support the ministry. I read about a church recently in California who was struggling financially, as many churches do. And they calculated if their entire congregation was on welfare. They were not. But if they were in welfare and tithed, the church income would double. The Bible calls us to be people who trust God and who give generously and joyfully. That is rooted in the generosity of God. Remember this, says Corinthians. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man, woman too, should give what he's decided to give in his heart, not reluctantly or on compulsion. For God loves a cheerful, a hilarious giver. And God is able to make His grace abound to you, so that in all things, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Secondly, we're responsible to support our families. Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Thirdly, we're responsible to help and assist others in the church. Galatians 6. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Four, we are responsible to help those who are needy, hungry, thirsty. That's Matthew 25. But with honesty, we still worry. We worry about all kinds of things. We worry about our health. We worry about our family, our children. We worry about money. Jesus talked to us in Matthew chapter 6. Starts about verse 25. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is life no more important than these? Verse 27 again. I tell you, do not worry. Verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See the lilies of the field. How God uses and clothes them and makes them beautiful. You understand that? Verse 31. 
again. Okay, why do you, so do not worry saying, what should we eat, what should we drink, or what should we wear? For the pagans, the unbelievers, run after these things. Your heavenly Father, he says, knows what you need. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things, that means all of the things that we worry about, will be added to you. Let's call worry for what it is. Worry is a liar. We read in the Bible, we sing about trusting God, He provides, He cares. And even as we sing about that, you know that worry can sneak into our minds and say, don't believe that. Worry sows the seeds of mistrust and doubt. All worry does is what Satan did in the garden, which was to plant an idea. Don't believe God. Worry is a thief. Worry plunders our heart and our soul and robs us of peace. We worry about the past. Which is what we said and what we did or perhaps didn't do. Worry takes us back to living in the quagmire and the swamp of what we cannot change. We worry about the future. Worry catapults us about what has not yet taken place. And we see all that might happen. We, we wonder about, we imagine a thousand what ifs. What if this happens and what if that happens? We become paralyzed with fear about what may never be. Worry has done its deadly work and it goes on to somebody else. By the way, the way to take charge of, of the past, which we can't change, is through forgiveness. The way we take charge of the future, which we don't know yet, is to make promises. Forgiveness deals with the past. Promises sets an island in the unknown of the future. So Jesus says, don't worry. Which is not the same as who cares. Which is not the same as whatever. Jesus' remedy, a solution for worry, is to seek the kingdom, to make a kingdom choice, to put the kingdom first and allow God to give you the gift of his peace so that you can get on with your day. If making a kingdom choice gives us enormous power from which we stand and live, then making a kingdom choice also gives us enormous peace. We have chosen to live in a way that is aligned with the kingdom of God, the character of God, the will of God, the attitudes of God. And we will trust God to meet us in His faithfulness. And the gift that we receive for that decision is the gift of His peace. That's why Paul says to the Philippians, so don't be anxious, don't worry about anything. Exactly the same phrases out of Matthew. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and many of you would know this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which means it's beyond what we can think or fathom, will stand guard over our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So when this robber, this rapist, called worry comes, it it finds the door of our heart and mind barred and defended by that armed warrior of God, which is called peace. I'm sure if we time this morning, many, many of you could stand and give witness to that truth about how to live. When you made a kingdom choice, put it first, and it was not easy to do, when you said no to some things and yes to other things and you said yes to the kingdom 
You made a kingdom choice even in tough times. And you could stand back and watch how his faithfulness would rise in your life like the rising of the dawn. When we seek the kingdom, and when we will trust putting the kingdom first, we're really saying, God, we trust you. We will not listen to the voices of pragmatism or doubt. We will not listen to the lies of distrust. We will call in your faithfulness. Tommy, do you want to come back? We'll call in your faithfulness to rise in our lives like the dawn. So would you stand with me? And um, go back in your mind and heart and voice in just a moment to an old, old hymn. But it really affirms what we said this morning. Great is your faithfulness. O God, my Father, morning by morning, it comes. Day by day, God gives us His peace.